Hello everyone and welcome, welcome, welcome back to Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J and we are moving right along in part four of our mini-series on the 1977 murder of T.K. Hardy. With that, I wanted to bring someone to the forefront back on the air. He's always behind the scenes checking my work and designing for the podcast. Kyle, our co-producer, is here. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thank you, and it's so good to be back. So, first of all, how hard is it to work on Classic City Crime? It's not that hard. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I wanted to bring you on to give our listeners a synopsis of what we've covered the last few weeks and where we're headed this week in this ultimate historic crime story right here in Classic City. All right, well, again, hello, everyone. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the 1977 murder of Athens, Georgia businessman and saloon owner T.K. Hardy, who was shot dead in his Cleveland Road home on August 30th of 1977. The murder came after a feud between Hardy and business rival John Mooney. It exploded after a war over draft beer and the ultimate eviction of Mooney by Hardy. We know that, according to the prosecution, John Mooney reportedly hired oven repairman Elmo Florence to kill TK Hardy. So Elmo broke into TK's home, hid in waiting for TK to arrive home, threw the lease right down in front of him in his study, and then shot him. Elmo Florence was arrested after confessing to Robert Reinhold a month later. John Mooney was arrested after returning from Europe in October of 1977. Both men were charged and convicted of murder. Last week, we ended with Elmo Florence being sentenced to a high security prison and John Mooney landing himself in a lower security prison in Wayne County, Georgia. (laughs) And what a mistake that would come to be. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And with that, let's start our deep dive into part four, the murder of TK Hardy, The Escape. Now, before we get to talking about how John Mooney escaped and really where he might have gone, I want to again begin this episode by introducing you to yet another person who reached out to talk about his relationship with John Mooney before and while he was incarcerated. That's the big thing we're talking about this week. The man you're about to hear from would actually come to own somebody's pizza, and he had quite the story to tell about his encounters with John Mooney. I started out asking him the same question I ask everyone. Who was John Mooney to you? Smooth, a gentleman, Mm -hmm. nice. Jimmy Dinette always said he looked like Robert Redford. (laughs) He had sort of a blonde red hair thing going on. Mm -hmm. And bright, he was a bright guy. Al says he knew pretty much everyone involved in the story, including T.K. Hardy and the feud brewing down at the station, but he does say that he did not realize just how upset John Mooney had become. I didn't, frankly, I didn't think he was as irate as it it proved to be. Mm -hmm. I, I thought he was pissed, you know. Right. You know, like, screw him I hate you know mm-hmm. what, what an ass that kind of thing but I had no idea I, I had no knowledge of who Elmo was I had never even heard of that guy 
So you might be asking yourself right now, how does Al come into the picture as it relates to John Mooney being incarcerated and what we're talking about this week? Well, remember, John Mooney left behind somebody's pizza at the station and uptown in what is now the Globe. Al contends that one attorney, now this is one that you have not heard from on my podcast, who was representing Mooney, was actually facilitating the sale of somebody's pizza to him. John was still getting lucky while sitting in jail awaiting trial. Listen to this story. But the way we got involved with buying somebody's from him was we were doing a really good job. We were very popular in our restaurant. But at the time, at that actual time, John's attorney, I'm going to, John is going to be John Mooney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, John's attorney called me and said that he has a chance to, to get John Mooney's business away from him if we would go in and buy it. Uh, if, if we would, if we would buy the business, he would, he would, well, he would go on as 50, 50% partners and we would all own somebody's pizza in both locations. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say, he, he was in, I, I, I want to, I don't want to say in cahoots, but we were in concert together. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Mooney did not want to talk to my partner. He didn't like him at all. Mm-hmm. So it was up to me to go up there and talk with John at the jail and negotiate for the purchase of somebody's pizza. Wow. And so it was, I had a a friend who worked with us at at the restaurant. He didn't have any involvement with buying or anything, but he was a very smart guy and a a good friend. So Jerry and I went up there to Jefferson. We made maybe three trips total up there. And uh, and met with John, and uh, it took that it took three trips because he wouldn't let you sit all day. Uh, it took three trips to sit in there and negotiate with John. He still had in mind that he was going to get out. Wow. So so he was playing. Uh, he, he was he was hanging tough with his negotiation. And he wouldn't give up on some points. He wanted to, you know, first he wanted. He, he needed money, so he wanted to sell, but he wanted to retain ownership, some ownership. And, it, you know, that was that was no. Yeah, <laughs> right, I'm sure. I'm not doing that. So it took a while. We got it. We went up there one day, and John was just being firm, wouldn't budge at all. We came back, and we told Jay Cook that, you know, he was being stubborn on this, but I thought we could bring him around. Jay says, um, I'll call him, you go back. We went back and uh, and, and John was compliant. You know, he, he, I don't want to say caved in or anything, but I think he realized, I think he realized just how he would not be partners with anybody. Right, you know? right. He, he was going to go to jail. Uh, and I, I don't know what Jay said to him or anything, but anyway, we, we did that and we bought it. Um, that, and that's how it happened. Uh, I guess you can tell, I don't have to give my, even my opinion on this, but in hindsight, I, I just don't think it was right. 
And Al visited John Mooney again one more time, and the story about this encounter is quite interesting. Take a listen. They put us in a room, and there was a phone on the desk in the room. John picked up the phone and, and made a phone call. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought, what the hell? And, you know, he called, he called Leon, you know, from the jail. So that made me think that Leon had a huge involvement mm-hmm. in the whole thing. Now, I did want to pop in here and remind you that Leon Farmer was the beer distributor who worked with John and Jimmy on beer sales at somebody's pizza. Now, remember, if this story is true and Leon is who John was communicating with, that's really interesting because remember, the beer war that started at the station all happened because John Mooney was able to sell Leon's draft beer at a cost that T.K. Hardy just couldn't compete with. And this is a funny thing too, that in that place where they put John, there was a door leading to the outside. Mm -hmm. And while we were in there, one of the deputies came in one door and went out that door that led to the outside and he left it open, kind of cracked open. John was sitting there in a chair, and he looked at that door. I mean, stared at that open door. Nobody said a thing. He just, then he looked back, and he smiled, and he shook his head. <laughs> and, uh, kind of like, should I run for it? And run for it he did. But how? Well, John Mooney is sentenced to jail and suddenly escapes on March 16, 1980 from Wayne State Prison in Jessup, Georgia. How? Well, just like John has always seemingly been able to do, finding his way to get what he wants. John had reportedly been promoted to a kitchen clerk in the low security prison. He put himself in a garbage can, one that would be rolled out of the gate by other prisoners. And when the gate went locked, John proceeded to a getaway car driven by someone people still debate over. Now I have my own ideas about who drove the car, and so does the former district attorney Harry Gordon. John Mooney was now out of prison after serving only 19 months of his life sentence, and you can only imagine the displeasure this must have brought my friend district attorney Harry Gordon back in Athens, who warned the warden from the start to keep their eyes on John Mooney and his potential for being a flight risk. We don't really know how he escaped. They tried to say that he got into a trash can and they took him out and dumped him, you know, but I don't know. He never would admit it. He escaped from the Wayne County Institution, I suppose. And we always just kind of assumed, and it really didn't matter, we always kind of assumed that's what happened. I and a lot of people thought that his girlfriend probably got him out of there. The search was on for the man who hired another to kill T.K. Hardy, but the search for Mooney would not be easy. After all, it's reported that prison officials didn't even know he was missing for two hours. Plenty of time for an intelligent criminal to find his way out of the small South Georgia town. Now as just an aside, I'm from the area, the beaches of Georgia are not too terribly far, and the interstate is close by. Now you can only imagine what finding out John Mooney escaped was like for the people involved in the trial that you've heard from already. 
Here's Robbie Reinhold recounting what he thought when police came knocking on his door to let him know the man he testified against had escaped. They knock on my door. It's like 8 o'clock in the morning. And there's Kenny Kilgore and Collinsworth, both Coney County police. And I looked at him. I said, oh, shit. Don't tell me <laughs> Elmo escaped. And they said, no, Mooney did. <laughs> and I said, oh. So, you know, I said to... Um, I said, um, you know, where did they go? I said, where did he escape from? And they said, Jessup. I said, he went to Savannah. Go down to Savannah. You'll find them down there. You know, we don't have the funding to do that. And I said, you're going to find them in Savannah. Savannah or not, John Mooney was gone. Enter my next guest right now. Former Sheriff of Oconee County, Scott Barry, and I were able to chat because, believe it or not, he too played a role in the manhunt that ensued to capture the escaped John Mooney. Now, while I know Sheriff Barry and I do not always agree on everything, I knew there was one thing that we had in common. One thing that Jimmy said was that you know how to tell a hell of a story and cause a hell of a ruckus. What would you say about that? <laughs> I, I, would say, I would say he's right. I do. I like... Uh... Uh, there's something about chaos I like. <laughs> that might be one thing you and I have in common, Sheriff. Yeah, um, there's something, uh, something, I, something I sort of like about about controlling chaos and condensing the nonsense and, mm -hmm. and uh, being responsible for that kind of thing. I, I enjoy that. But before becoming Sheriff of Oconee County, Barry was hired by District Attorney Gordon as a lead investigator right in the midst of the frenzy surrounding the T.K. Hardy case. Uh, Harry hired me in uh, July, on July 8th, 1980, mm -hmm. and I went to work for Harry then. So that's when I kind of became immersed in the legend of the T.K. Hardy case. Well, what did you think coming into that DA's office and seeing this case and hearing all about it and, you know, the, the media frenzy that ensued for a young, young person in law enforcement like yourself? What, what was going through your mind about a case like this? Somebody had to find him, mm -hmm. and I was bound and determined to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> every now and then, I would just, I would just get the information up, and 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 of course, you know, we didn't have the internet back then, mm -hmm. so you know, I was having to having to check fingerprints, and um, um, we would get, uh, we would get, you know, ask the FBI to you know, especially look for finger, fingerprint matches, mm -hmm. anybody who's been arrested for DUI or something like that. And um, we actually had two cases at the same time, a guy named Michael Milstead, mm -hmm. who had escaped, and, um, and John Henry Mooney. Mm -hmm. So I would alternate looking for both of them. And just in my spare time when I was sitting there with nothing to do or not much to do, I would rather look for fugitive than eat when I'm hungry. So, um, um, well, where but, um, where did y'all think this fugitive John Henry Mooney was in the initial search? Did you think he was going to end up in Arizona? Did you have any idea? No idea. No idea. Mm -hmm. No idea. I was. I wasn't even satisfied he was still in the country. But mm -hmm. he, I mean, at that point in time. We didn't have anywhere to look for him. No, there were no active leads that I was aware of, of anybody that had seen him or 
cited him or anything like that. So, you know, the only the only place I knew he wasn't was around Athens. Mm-hmm. So, so we had to we had to expand our search uh, to anywhere we could find him. Mm-hmm. And um, um, you know, the beautiful thing about working for Harry Gordon was that he let me work on those kinds of cases too. I mean, mm-hmm. he really didn't stop me from doing that kind of work. Um, as long as I was getting my other work done, right. um, I could I could work on those kinds of cases, and that's what I that's what I grew to appreciate about working for Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave me a lot of free reign to to um, work on those kinds of fugitive cases. And again, I'd just soon do that as anything. So. And so, Barry and his team at the DA's office, in conjunction with other law enforcement agencies, of course, continued their search for the ever-elusive John Henry Mooney. And John remained completely out of sight, not out of mind, though, for nearly a decade. So, where is John Mooney? With little to no luck in locating the fugitive on the run, a different approach was taken, you know... An approach much like the one we're doing right here on a local level with our podcast. Yes, you know this theme music if you're a child of the time period. You know it all too well accompanied by that deep, dark voice. Yes, that's right, Unsolved Mysteries. They aired an episode featuring several of the people you've heard from right here on the podcast to try and help search for Mooney. And as it sometimes goes, there wasn't much success with that first airing. But then there was a second. Here again is Sheriff Scott Berry. Unsolved Mysteries, the the airing of that show, the two airings of it, absolutely broke that case wide open Mm -hmm. the second airing the first airing uh didn't result in in the person that eventually watched the show in arizona seeing it she Mm -hmm. didn't see that she didn't see that episode but um she did when it aired again in the summertime and that's when in a matter of days after the airing of that second episode of this of the re-airing the summertime airing mm-hmm. of that show uh, is when um, when the informant called me. Called me, and uh, well, actually, she called the show. Mm-hmm. And the sh- what the show would do is every time they'd get tips, they would generate this huge computer printout. You know, the paper that ran on tracks. Mm-hmm. You know, had mm-hmm. the holes in the side. Yeah, and they would just they would mail by mail. Because uh, we didn't have email back then, and um, uh, they would email those leads to me. And there were people, you know, I talked to people in Oklahoma. He doesn't look anything like the guy, but it looks like the guy who played him on TV. And <laughs> Minnesota guy said they found the leg bone. Maybe it's his. You know, all kinds of leads like that, <laughs> and um, over four hundred of them. And I tried to follow up on anything that was remotely credible. And um, when I got the lead that he had been at the Olympics for, um, he'd been at the LA Games, um, 
I was I my my spider senses started tingling. Mm, I bet. Um, I knew I knew we had him then, mm-hmm. and that's when I started reaching out to my contacts in Arizona. So John Mooney had found his way nearly a decade later to Arizona, and in August of 1989 he was rearrested. But he wasn't calling himself John Mooney any longer. No, he had changed his identity altogether. The new John Mooney, where he really went, and how those here in Athens grappled with the fact that the man on the run at last had been found. We'll be right back. So for our intermission this week, I wanted to do a community spotlight on someone that you all know very well. If you read the local paper, you see his name often appearing under some of the day's biggest headlines. I got to briefly meet with reporter Wayne Ford just hours before this episode went live in true Cameron and classic city crime fashion. He came to know of the case after the murder had occurred when he came to Athens as a young reporter. 1982, okay, I moved to Athens and I was hired as the police and court reporter for the Banner Herald, which at the time was the afternoon paper. We had two newspapers back in those days. And uh, I remember my editor asked me, he says, will you do a story on this uh, T.K. Hardy case, which you know, I didn't know anything about it. And so I looked into it and, uh, and as it happened, I lined up an interview with Elmo. He was in a prison up in Alto. So with that communication, I had to ask him, did he get to know Elmo really well? He says no, but that Elmo did maintain something very important. Uh, I spent a long time with him up at Alto. And uh, as you can see in my file, he did correspond with me several times. And uh, he always said that, you know, John Moody was innocent. If you read the letters, you'll see he, he maintains that. And so I never went back to interview him again. And uh, so basically the case was pretty quiet. Now Wayne Ford has gotten letters from both Elmo Florence and John Mooney, and I have them sitting right in front of me. Their contents are truly remarkable. Be sure to catch more with my chat with Wayne and the full contents of the letters from Elmo Florence and John Mooney in their own words next week in part five of the TK Hardy story. But for now, let's get back to part four, The Escape. Welcome back, where we now find ourselves in the state of Arizona, nine years after the murder of T.K. Hardy. Now, John Mooney had found a new life under a new name, with a new family, completely undetected until that second airing of Unsolved Mysteries. D.A. Harry Gordon was at home one evening when Scott Berry gave him the call that would change everything. Their fugitive had finally been found. I was at home. It was after I was, I was at home. It's a hair they found our man out there in, in, a, in Mesa. And he, he told me all about it. And I told him, I said, well, get us a couple of plane tickets because we're going out there. Now, 
I've gotten to know Harry a little bit, and I can see this in my head already. Harry was ready to get those plane tickets, ready to get on a one-way flight to Arizona to spend as much time there as it took to get John Mooney back. And that is exactly what happened. He climbed on a plane, flew out west, and prepared to surprise the fugitive he convicted of murder nine years earlier. And I asked myself, can we go down to the courtroom? He said, yeah, he's gonna, they're gonna bring him in at blank time. So I said, well, I need to be there because I think he's gonna try to get a bond. And uh, I got that handled. They didn't give him a bond. But when he walked in to the courtroom, they had him and three or five, four other guys chained together in a thing. And he had his head down and uh, he had told everybody that he was Robert Kelly and that he did he don't know what this is about John Mooney. And so I asked that DA, I said, you guess it's okay if I go down there and I'll ask him. And they said, yeah, he's your prisoner, he's gonna do that. So I went down there and John was sitting there like this. And I just walked up to him and I said, you're not going to tell me you're, you're not John Mooney, are you? And he looked up at me, he said, oh, GD. <laughs> he said, you're going to kill me. I said, why am I going to kill you? The only thing I want you to know. He you didn't can... expect you to be there. No. <laughs> and then uh, I told him, I said, the only thing I want to guarantee you, I don't care one of these fancy lawyers you get, but you going back to Georgia get that other thing. So he didn't waive extradition at first, but he waived it in a little while. Not only did seeing Harry shock John, but learning about John was a shock for his family and his wife, who Harry actually had to break the news to. Her husband was no Robert Kelly. He was John Henry Mooney, a man on the run for the 1977 murder-for-hire plot that killed Theodore T.K. Hardy. John Mooney asked to talk to D.A. Gordon once all was settled in Arizona, and here's what D.A. Gordon recalls John telling him. But after we got through with that, he said, will you come up and talk to me? I'm holding him in a holding cell. And I said, I asked was all right with the D.A. I didn't want to take his time, you know. And he said, Harry, you got the floor, anything you want to do. And those Mesa police officers, were absolute the finest I've ever seen. It, it, it was so impressive that I couldn't believe it. And they said, whatever you want, we'll do. And that's what they did. So anyway, I went up and talked to them about an hour, hour and a half. And I got basically that information I gave you a minute ago from him again. And I said, well, how did you get out all the way out here? And he said, well, I just kept going and kept, I had to float a good bit. I asked him when I captured him, when they captured him the second I said, where in, the, where in the world did you go? How'd you get out? He said, well, I'm not gonna go into that, but I said, he said, basically I went up, I don't know if he talked to me or was telling somebody else, but I do know it. I went up a highway, I 20, and I caught a ride to somewhere in Florida, like Jacksonville or something. And I stayed in some kind of help house down there. And I just kind of worked my way throughout the years uh, doing odd jobs until I got to Arizona. And then he said I went to work for a bank. And he, he would be good in there. And 
they kept asking for my social, which I couldn't give them. And I kept saying, well, you know, I forgot. I, I'll order them again. He got away with it for a while. Couldn't do it, but when he got out there, he met this lady and he married her. Well, I could tell by correspondence by the police officer that she was a really a fine person. You know, you could sense that. And I had the responsibility of kind of telling her what was going to happen. Was she aware of who he was? Pardon? Was she aware of the John Mooney he was? She had no, and I believe it, because I mean, she said, what are you talking about? She's one of those ladies that probably wouldn't even curse, you know what I mean? And I said, well, so she got her priest, I don't know if he's a priest or not, but he had a, Mm -hmm. to go into court with him. And I did it. Well, they'd had a little baby. And, of course, that was it. Uh, and I told her, I said, I'm sorry. But she said, he couldn't. He should, How could he do that? I said, you just didn't know John Mooney. That's what I said. He, he, he's like that. That's what he thinks. And so she was very nice, but she was hurt. And so we stayed on out there, you know, maybe another half day. And we came back. You see, John really had eluded Scott and Harry. He'd eluded everyone, even police and people right here in Athens. Remember Jimmy Dinette, his former business partner? Well, he knew nothing of where John was this entire time, but John had most definitely seen him. There's this letter, I think it was written in 1987, where John says, Hey, Jimmy, I know you're mad at me. Things didn't, you know, blah, all this kind of stuff. He said, I've seen you two times, he said, since then. And John says, I saw you over in Phoenix, Arizona at the, I think it was the Florida State-Penn State game, standing out in front of the stadium looking for tickets for the national championship game. <laughs> Shit, yeah, I was there. And wow. I mean, there's no question about it. And he said, then in Los Angeles, in the, the 1980, I guess, two or four Olympics, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, he said, I saw you and another guy standing out in, in front of some venue, I forget it was, venue, and you were doing this. And he said, both times, he said, I, I wanted to come up and talk to you. He said, but I was afraid it would just cause a fight. But that letter just, that just knocked me back. I bet. I mean, you know, this is a small world, it's a big world, it's a small mm-hmm. world. So I told you this story really is a wild one, right? John Mooney first thought he had mastered a way to get the lease signed. Instead, T.K. Hardy ends up dead. Then he thinks he mastered the escape, getting away with it for nine years, but it all came crashing down for him when Harry Gordon climbed on that plane to Arizona. But I had to ask and wonder, what did former Mooney defense attorney Ed Tolley think about the fact that his former client, whose life, remember, he had spared, had not only escaped from prison, but then was captured again. Here's Ed Tolley on what he thought about the whirlwind that followed when John Mooney escaped from prison. Selfishly, I was so disappointed that he escaped because we had created, not created, but we had argued a significant search and seizure issue, which we believed was worthy of the U.S. Supreme Court review. Mm -hmm. 
they were moving to review it when he escaped, and then the next term, following our failure to get cert granted because mm-hmm. he had escaped, uh, the next term they decided a case with a search and seizure question almost like ours. So mm-hmm. what, what am I trying to say here? We argued all along those notes shouldn't have been in evidence and that they in and of themselves were very dramatic and, and certainly contributed to his convic- conviction, if not convincing the jury he should be convicted. As a lawyer, speaking strictly academically, I was disappointed. As a person, I was disappointed because in those days, had he stayed put, the, the parole guideline on a murder case was seven to ten years. By the time they caught him and brought him back, it had moved to 30. He, uh, Without a doubt, he, he damaged himself further. I've come to call these if John had only things. If John had only been satisfied with somebody's pizza at the station, TK might still be alive and everything might still be well. If John had not given Elmo Florence a gun, perhaps TK would still be alive too. But this time, it was if John had only stayed put in prison, he might have gotten out quicker than he even thought. So I wonder, and I hope to one day ask, would John Mooney exchange the nine years he was a free man in Arizona for the years of his latter life he might have spent as a free man? This is a question I hope we'll be able to bring to you right here on Classic City Crime. Now someone recently asked me, what good do you find in digging up this old story from decades ago anyway? And I thought about that really hard and my answer is this. Apart from the historic nature of the crime itself, I mean, there's a lot of drama around it, right? I think there are a lot of lessons for us to learn, even here now. Lessons that every single person you've heard from on this podcast will be sharing with you next week. This case really did change all of them. It changed the way some people did business. It most certainly changed the lives of Elmo Florence and John Mooney, and the family of T.K. Hardy, but it also changed Athens, too. So for all this talk about John Mooney, I do want to bring up Elmo Florence again. Elmo Florence never escaped, but over a 30-year period, he did try to win release 11 times, failing each one of those until 2007 when the parole board let the 76-year-old man walk free after serving three decades for shooting T.K. Hardy. One of the people you've heard from, though, was not happy about this decision at all, D.A. Harry Gordon. He's quoted in the Athens Banner Herald at the time as actually saying, quote, There's no way in the world for anyone to sit back like we do and try to figure out how in the hell the parole board thinks. Elmo may be too old and worn out to do anything now, but this is a man with no moral fiber or conscience, end quote. Elmo Florence died 10 years after being released at 86 years old. John Mooney, on the other hand, not counting his nine-year life of freedom, spent 32 years behind bars for his hand in the murder. In the later years of his sentence, he was represented by local attorney Bob Elkins, who ultimately helped Mooney gain parole in 2020. Why? 
Elkins wrote that, quote, if Mr. Mooney's parole is finalized this time, he certainly will not have been rewarded for his escape. He has, quote, served more than the current 30-year guideline for life sentences and is in the age group that is least likely to commit new offenses, end quote. And John Mooney and attorney Bob Elkins had help from an unlikely source, former DA Harry Gordon. And then he kept on asking for parole, and most of the time I would object to it. But this last time, which was this year, as a matter of fact, Bob was helping him, and I wrote the parole board and said, I'm not going to object to it because it's not my case anymore, but it is. And then the DA here sent a letter opposing it. But anyway, I figured it was time for him to get out. I didn't didn't oppose it. I really didn't, and I don't feel bad about it. I I mean, 30 years because he's... He's like 73 now. So in all of this, I did want to ask my friend Ed Tolley, how does one in his profession and an attorney personally grapple with this question? When is it okay for someone to be released back into society, and when is it not? Is it because of who you know, or is it because of what risk you might pose? It's a tough question, he admitted. Academically and personally, how do you decide when someone you know, after committing a violent act is, is or being involved or convicted of being involved in a violent act, I should say, how does one determine when that person has been pursued by grace or therefore is not posing a risk to society in the sense of that they can be released or, or can, um, you know, come back into society? How do you make that judgment and where does the line draw on that? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and it's one that's debated by many people. Um, and, of course, you know, I'm not the one that makes that decision, and this sure. made by the parole board, uh, or in this case by the jury, made the decision to let him live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm quite sure they were aware that he would be eligible for parole at some point. I think my answer to your question would be that worldwide, the United States of America um, incarcerates people for extraordinarily long periods of time in contravention of what most Western uh, societies do. So you start with that proposition. And secondly, you have to recognize that all of us change as we get older. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've represented a lot of guys that were mighty tough customers in their youth, but by the time they're in their 60s, are completely different people. Either they found God or they've come to peace with their childhood or they they feel like they've paid their debt to society. I mean, there's all different cuts. And I think the unfortunate thing when anybody gets a parole is that one half of 1% or less that goes back to commit another crime. I was on the crime commission when um, Joe Frank Harris was governor as a commissioner, and I remember looking at statistics then, and the safest people to parole, and please don't laugh at this, were people that had committed murder. Um, They rarely, rarely, if ever, uh, re-offended. The worst people to parole were always the the thieves, you know, the burglars and the 
and the uh, people who committed simple theft, Cameron. So it's it's really interesting because you go to parole somebody, you don't want them to reoffend, and the people who were in the category of least likely to reoffend were generally the people who had committed murder. More on all of this next week when we continue with the murder of T.K. Hardy and the lessons we can all learn about why deceit, lies, greed, and money can lead to not only so many lives senselessly destroyed, but to it happening in a city that we all love. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next Thursday. I'm Cameron J. Classic City Crime is hosted by me, Cameron J., and co-produced and designed by Kyle Kazaya. Visit us online at ClassicCityCrime.com or email us at ClassicCityCrime at gmail.com. Visit us on Facebook and Instagram at ClassicCityCrime. We look forward to hearing from you. See you right back here every Thursday.